Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca with The Courage to Hope. And tonight we have a very distinguished guest. We have Angelo M. Valenti. He is from New Jersey. And I'm going to start off tonight with a little bio <clears throat> info about Angelo, because he is somebody who has been in the opioid battle since 1992. Angelo Valenti has been the executive director of the Partnership for Drug-Free New Jersey since its inception in 1992 and has led the organization to become the largest continuous public service campaign in New Jersey's history. During his tenure, Angelo has advised and collaborated with eight governors on developing and implementing statewide strategies to address substance use disorder. Most recently, Angelo and the partnership were a driving force in support of New Jersey's legislative response to the statewide opioid epidemic. In particular, the partnership developed and advocated for New Jersey's patient notification law and now requires a prescriber to inform patients or parents of patients 18 and under of the potential addictive qualities of an opioid prior to prescribing them. This law also requires that a prescriber provide the patient with non-opioid alternatives that are available to address their acute pain. This groundbreaking legislation has now been adopted in 18 states throughout the country, utilizing New Jersey's model with the guidance of Angelo and his team. And Angelo is actually helping us in Massachusetts to get past H4814, which is a similar piece of legislation. So welcome, Angelo. Hi, thank you, Tony. Pleasure to be here. Oh, we're very happy to have you. And since you've been in uh, doing this since 1992, how did how did you get into it? How did you get, uh, and how did you form this group? And sure. Must, yeah, give us the history. Well, before I begin, I just want to say that I do have some Massachusetts roots. My mom lived in Quincy, Massachusetts when she was a child before we all moved to New Jersey. So uh, we, we continue to visit Massachusetts and uh, and it's a beautiful uh, state, a beautiful part of our country. So, so happy to be uh, on your show in, in, in such a great state. Um, my, my involvement with the, with the beginnings and the origins of the Partnership for a Drug-Free New Jersey was really from uh, the advertising, uh, my advertising background, as opposed to uh, a personal involvement in, in substance use or substance use disorders. Um, we had a uh, gentleman in the state by the name of J.P. Neely, who was the chair of the Governor's Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse in New Jersey. And when the National Partnership at the time, the Partnership for a Drug-Free America, approached him about replicating and starting a state alliance, an affiliate with, to the National Partnership in the state of New Jersey, and they shared with him that a lot of what was going to be done was going to be done from a meteor uh, with with media support, development of public service announcements, and getting you know the media involved. I I had worked with JP in some of his private companies, uh, doing a lot of advertising and public relations work, and that's really why he came to me and asked me about getting involved and in starting up this new organization. So. 
it was really interesting because what we did in New Jersey was we uh, looked at our organization, even though it became a nonprofit, really as a business. And we uh, tapped and we generated support not only from the New Jersey media community, but also from, from the New Jersey corporate sectors, from community coalitions, from government. And we made it a coalition uh, that from the very start had everyone sitting at the table, everybody working together in order to solve this problem. And initially in 92, we weren't dealing with opiates. Uh, we were dealing with, um, it, you know, uh, the marijuana use was, was, a, was a very uh, important subject, uh, especially with adolescents, uh, certainly, uh, the abuse of alcohol was something that we were tackling as well, which we still are with 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 adolescents. Uh, we were de dealing with designer drugs. And about, I guess, about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, we first got very actively involved with the opiate epidemic uh, prior to even it even be being designated as an epidemic. And what we were finding with our law enforcement partners was sharing information about the fact that a lot of young people were experimenting with prescription drugs. There was a lot of ways in which they were doing that. They were having uh, events where they would get together. They would call them bowling parties and they would grab medicines out of medicine cabinets, throw them in a bowl and experiment and see what reaction people would get. Uh, there was a, a misunderstanding that because these drugs were prescribed uh, by a doctor to their grandparents, to their parents, that they were safe. And they really didn't have any sort of uh, concern about the addictive qualities of these drugs or the fact that in, in so many cases, they would lead to dependency and they would lead to heroin addiction. Uh, so what we did in New Jersey, we first launched a effort to be able to uh, get folks to understand that the drugs they had in their medicine cabinet can become potentially dangerous and deadly. And we wanted them to make sure that they looked at what drugs they had in their cabinets and that they disposed of the medicines, especially the opiates that they no longer needed or wanted. And they also kept them in a place safe away from their children, away from potential workmen in the house, away from people that would easily access these drugs. And in some cases, unfortunately, begin their uh, path of addiction. So we launched the first ever Take Back Day. Uh, now we're, it's very common. We see them on an annual basis. Uh, the DEA on a national level has hosted them over the past you know, probably dozen years. But that all started with our effort in New Jersey. In fact, we uh, had the first ever national uh, statewide Take Back Day uh, back in 1998. And at that point, um, excuse me, 2008, 2008. And at that point, um, the partnership decided that they were going to tackle this issue by addressing the fact that so many people, about 70% of people who were, who were dependent on opiates as admitted or uh, described their access to these drugs in the medicine cabinets of family and friends. So we thought it was important to be able to bring that information to the public. And what we did is we worked with our attorney general at the time, as well as the local DEA in the state of New Jersey and established the first take back day in the country. And it was so successful that we then advised the national Drug Enforcement Administration on rolling out this effort throughout the country. And but one of the things we realized from, with this program is that it was only a very small part of the puzzle in addressing this issue. 
the, the what what really came to light was that these medications were being prescribed so liberally. I mean, it wasn't unusual for people to leave an emergency room situation or a doctor's office or a dentist's office with a 30 or 60 day supply of an opiate. And we know now, uh, and this was only about 10 years later, that those practices really led to the opiate epidemic. The fact that there were so many people that were being prescribed these medicines and we also have recently learned that it only takes about five days for an opiate to become, for a person to become dependent on an opiate after being prescribed these drugs. So what we did as a follow-up to that is we worked very hard to be able to uh, advocate uh, in New Jersey and as you mentioned throughout the country to alert patients who were receiving these drugs that these, these are very potentially dangerous medications, potentially addictive medications. And that even if you are prescribed an opiate, that you should only take them for a short period of time and that you should dispose of the ones you no longer need or want. So we, as we, what started as a, a real focus on, on the disposal of these medicines and the safeguarding of these medicines, that was part of the initial phase, but we learned that it was just as important, if not more important, that we stop prescribing these medicines at the levels we were prescribing them at. Right. Let's go back for a second. When you started the take back day, so we had, um, that's when people were able to drop off their drugs at the drugs at the, at the police station or the fire station and yes. so forth. Um, and what if they don't have a, a place, let's say they live in a remote area and, and there's no, no one doing it. How would you dispose of well, opioids in your opinion, which is the best way? Sure. What we've done with our, uh, the group that we formed uh, back, uh, back in 2008, the American Medicine Chest Challenge, is we provided not only instruction for disposal, but also what we call the five-step plan. And what those steps included uh, taking inventory, knowing what you have first and foremost, uh, being able to um, dispose of your medicine either at, at a disposal site or at home. And there's ways to do it at home that, are, that uh, we've, we've been able to share. One example of that, Tony, is that if you mix drugs with coffee grinds and then you dispose of it in your garbage, uh, you fill it with water and the drugs will dissolve into the coffee grinds and then throw, throwing them into the garbage was one meth method that was used. Uh, since that was a really early method, but it worked. Uh, since that point, there are a lot of home kits that are sold at pharmacies. And in some cases, communities will distribute these kits where you throw the medicine in the kits, you again uh, include water and the medicine will dissolve. And then those kits could be thrown into, into your garbage. So, so there was a lot of, there are, there are and continue to be a lot of options, not only for people going to a local disposal site, but also being able to dispose at home. Uh, another, another example was cat uh, um, food. Yep. Uh, that they were able to mix it with the with cat food and throw and uh, include water um, and then it dissolves and you can throw that throw that into your garbage as well so so there were a lot of a lot of ways that people can be able to dispose safely okay I, I like the coffee grind method I've tried that and it works quite well from, absolutely from, I, I always tell people if you're not sure and you're not using that drug anymore 
right. dispose of it. You know, uh, if, you know if you don't know what it is, get rid of it anyway. That's you know? right. And the other thing that, that your audience can do is they can visit AmericanMedicineChess.com. It's a website. And if you put your zip code in that, uh, we have a map throughout the country where the disposal sites are available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. They're permanent disposal sites. It'll tell you within a three, five, 10, 15 mile radius uh, where those sites are in relationship to where you live. So that's a really great resource uh, for people who want to dispose at these disposal sites. Well, that's a great idea. Um, talk to us a little bit about your partnership with like the Governor's Association, the National Sheriff's Association, and all the other national associations. How, you know, Again, you're in New Jersey, but you seem to be doing everything on a national level. Yeah, well, thanks, Tony. One of the things we found is that a lot of what we were doing uh, were groundbreaking and they were trailblazing. And like, for example, the take back concept, uh, that was something that never happened before. But we, we realized there was a need for people to dispose of their medicines and they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. So as a result of the, that, that plan and uh, that program uh, was then featured in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policies uh, annual report that goes around, out around the country. And what we found was that many national organizations were very interested in this subject uh, then and now, and they were looking for ways to be able to sort of bring best practices to their communities and their uh, particular counties or states. So we've had a, we had a, had an opportunity at that time and continue to do so to be able to really share what we're doing in a state with different organizations that are in this particular field. Uh, we've had chances to speak to the uh, state, the Association of Attorney Generals. Uh, we've spoken to the National Sheriff's Association, uh, National Chiefs of Police. And these, most of these presentations have been about, you know, how to be able to replicate the programs that we have and bring them to your county or your state. Uh, the same holds true for our legislation. And I know you mentioned it in the, in the intro, but the Patients' Right to Know Act was another part of the puzzle, putting, that, putting those pieces together. And what we found as a continuation of the take back, as a continuation of the other programs, uh, the limiting or the awareness on the uh, the fact that these these medicines were extremely addictive and can, could ease, someone could easily become dependent. We also thought it was important that the prescriber, whether it be a doctor or a dentist, share this information with their patient or the parents of patients at the time of prescribing. Because what we found was that many parents would come to us and talk about their stories about how their child was in a sports injury or their child had a, had a wisdom tooth extracted. And they were prescribed the medication. There was never any uh, information shared with that. It was usually given out when they were leaving the doctor's office or the dentist's office. They would go to the pharmacy, they fill it. In some cases, they would get a renewal in 30 days. And unfortunately, a certain percentage of those young people, in particular, in these circumstances, became dependent. And the parents were blindsided. These were, these were good kids from good families. Uh, they, the parents were doing everything right. And the chair of our board was in that situation. Uh, she had a son that um, was, had a sports injury 
And she often talks about the fact that not only did she go to the pharmacy to fill the prescription when he first got his rotor cut uh, procedure done, but she went and got refills for him based on the recommendation of the doctors. And she had, there was never any information shared with her that these drugs can become, the, the people can become dependent on them and it, it can become extremely, they, they are extremely addictive. So what she said was that if she only knew at the time of prescribing that these medicines could become addicted, two things. She would have looked for alternatives to the opiate if there was anything available. And secondly, she would have looked for the signs and symptoms of addiction early on. She wouldn't have waited 60, 90 days uh, in order to get help for her child. So she was really, the, her name is Elaine Pilzicki, Elaine and Steve, they're the chairs of our board. And they were really the inspiration along with many other parents who had the same kind of unfortunate circumstance that occurred to them that was behind the bill, the patient's right to know. So we, we, we worked for about two years to get the bill passed in the state of New Jersey. And uh, it wasn't easy, but we, we, we didn't let, let up on our efforts. And finally it was passed and we became the first state in the nation to require that a physician or a, doc, a dentist or a nurse practitioner, anyone who prescribes must have a conversation with the patient or the parents of patients 18 and under about two things when they prescribe an opiate. One is the addictive quality of the drug. And two is that if there's any alternatives available, non-opiate alternatives, that they should have to share that information. And as a result of, of putting that law into effect, uh, we, can, we actually worked with Brandeis University up in Massachusetts to do a research project about the impact of this law. And it was staggering and it was very, very encouraging. First of all, prior to the law going into effect, only about 20% of doctors indicated that they had this conversation with their patient. That changed to over 90% only a year after the law was put into effect. So almost all patients, 90% of patients were getting this information. We're only six months prior to that, only about 20% of patients were getting this life-saving information. The other thing that changed was we saw a steep decline in the, the um, prescribing of opiates for first prescriptions. And that was really encouraging because we knew from the research that we had been following that there has really been a sea shift change in prescribing of opiates. And the medical community had to catch up with the research. Uh, and what we're finding now that these conversations are required and that opiate alternatives are part of the conversation that the medical community had to do their homework. They had to see what was available for their patients, especially young patients. Uh, and that, so we, we can tie the legislation to really a significant shift in prescribing and, and a huge increase in knowledge among uh, New Jersey residents. Uh, now, you know, it's hard to measure, and you know this being involved, it's hard, very hard to measure prevention programs. I mean, usually they take years to have an impact. So to see this kind of change in such a short period of time, it was, we were very excited about that. But what we found to be even more, uh, you know, interesting was recently when the federal government released the results of, of the overdose deaths uh, across the country, during COVID over the last year and a half, 
what it showed was that there was a sharp increase in overdose deaths uh, across the board throughout the United States. However, New Jersey was only three states that did not see an increase. In fact, there was a stabilization during that period of time. And it's about two or three years after the law was put into effect. So we think that that knowledge, people being knowledgeable, and also we think that the fact that, you know, we had so, there was so much uh, information sharing prior to the, to the epidemic, uh, the pandemic uh, coming into place was re really safeguards that helped protect the residents of the state. And, you know, it showed in the results of both the survey and the results of, of the overdoses that we, we had over the last year. How, now, I just want to be very clear. The number that we have is still too high. I mean, the, the number of people that are being impacted and the number of families that are losing loved ones is still too high. However, it was encouraging to see that it did not increase at the same levels as what occurred in other, other parts of the country, in most other parts of the country. Yeah, I wanted to say uh, New Hampshire was one of those other states, correct? Yes, absolutely. And they, and they know they passed the bill because I talked to Governor Sununu and he told me that he signed it right away. And yes. I'm <clears throat> bringing that up because New Hampshire's in a, listening area. So there's a good possibility of people from New Hampshire listening to this. And, yes. and at this point in time, let's bring up H4814, which is yes. our bill. <clears throat> so for the listeners, um, I propose this same bill because of my discussions with Angelo um, a year and a half ago. And I brought it to my local state rep and to get it presented uh, before the Senate and the House in Massachusetts. And it looked, took us a year and a half to get it from one committee to the next. Right. Um, but we finally got it out of the, what is it? The, um, the, the health and uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the committee it was in. It's like the, the medical committee, but now it's gone to uh, appropriations and oh. it's, it finally is going to get some progress, I think. But how can our listeners help us get this thing passed so we can, put some put uh, all the other representatives and senators to be aware of it yes uh, you know really simply they can contact their local legislators and tell them that they support it's h4814 is the is the number of the bill and tell them how important it is that it saved lives and that it's it's something that's working in 18 states throughout the country and that we need to bring that legislation and we need to bring that law into Massachusetts. Uh, we think it's it's not only is, is it a right of the patient, but it's common sense. I mean, when someone's getting a prescription that we know now can become someone can become dependent on it in only five days. Uh, they should be able to be have this information with them. And we also know that the best way to keep people away from the path of dependency with opiates is to become opiate naive. So if you, you're not being prescribed an opiate, if that's not getting into your system, then you have a 100% chance of, of not getting, not becoming dependent on it. And we've also learned, and we've had numerous speakers over the past several years talk about programs that are in place in hospitals, in medical offices, uh, in surgery uh, facilities, where they're looking at alternatives to opiates as a way to be able to address acute pain. Uh, and, and, and it's been very successful. There are hospitals that are doing 
opiate-free emergency rooms throughout the country. So we know that there are ways to be able to address pain without opiates. And we also know that, you know, that, that, that this information needs to be shared with patients. And Tony, we spoke a little bit about the fact that, you know, this is really important for children and teens and young, young adults. And the reason for that is that the other research that has come out recently has shown that the brain is still developing on a young person until they're well into their mid twenties. So the impact that this has on the brain function is so could we believe is very severe when it comes to a child or a young adult, because that brain is still developing. So that's why it's even more important that we try to look at alternatives to opiates when dealing with acute pain, uh, sports injuries, uh, wisdom tooth extractions for young people. Yeah, I was going to say that in my research, um, the dentist is one of the biggest culprits because of the every time I find a, somebody that told me that their son or daughter died because of an overdose and they were under 21, it seemed like the dentist was 50% of the time the one that introduced the first opioids. And I don't understand why, why the dent, a dentist would be so naive about this when it's such a well, big national thing. You know, I think what's, what's, what, what's happening is that we're, everybody's trying to catch up with all the new information that's being shared. <clears throat> uh, for example, Stanford University only a few years ago did a study that showed that 6% of patients who were prescribed an opiate for dental extractions, adolescent patients were dependent on opiates, were using opiates one year later. And the only reason was because of the fact that they were prescribed these opiates during a wisdom tooth extraction. That's the only purpose for their, for their prescribing. We also have found that in many, many cases, 99.5% of the cases or more of wisdom tooth extractions, that opiates are not necessary. That using, uh, you know, over-the-counter pain reliefs, uh, you know, simple things like ice, uh, that there's a lot of other ways to address uh, that particular, dealing with that particular pain during that particular time in a child's life than, than being prescribed opiates. And certainly, if an opiate is required, which they may be, it doesn't have to be more than a two or three day uh, supply. Uh, what, what was happening was people were leaving, and this was only a few years ago, and it might still be happening in some places in the country, where people were leaving medical or dental offices with a, with a child, a 16, 18 year old child who had a wisdom tooth extracted, and they were getting a 30 day supply of an opiate. I mean, that's, that's, and unfortunately, and we know from the, from the studies that a certain percentage of these young people were going to become dependent and addicted. And, and then in many cases that led to heroin, a heroin addiction. So, so there's, th these are, these are steps that we can and must take at this point. Now, Tony, I just want to make mention of one thing, especially for your listeners in Massachusetts, because this, the law is still being debated and it's not in effect, doesn't mean that you as a parent don't have the right to ask those questions to your patients, to your doctors or to the doctors of your children or the dentists that you're dealing with. Please, it is, it is absolutely 
important that you ask these questions and you, you, you ask the doctor to explain to you about the addictive quality of the drugs that, that they're prescribing and also about the fact that there may be alternatives available. So because the, because the law is not into effect, doesn't mean you don't have the ability as a parent to be able to do that. I mean, I know for myself, I have three daughters and they're all athletes and we've wound up in the emergency rooms uh, several times over, over the years. And my youngest, who had a, uh, a fractured arm from one of, from playing soccer, uh, this was prior to the law in New Jersey being in effect. Uh, she was the, doc the doctor at the emergency room wanted to prescribe her an opiate. And we said, no, we said, we're not going to accept it. And, and we explained, I told him, you know, what, what I did for a living and, you know, the knowledge that I had about this. And, and he understood and he respected it. And he, he gave us an alternative to an opiate at that point. So there's no reason that all of your listeners shouldn't feel empowered to be able to, to ask those questions uh, to, the, to the physician, to the nurse practitioner, in whatever the circumstances are. That's a great idea. And, and again, that bill number is H4814. Right. So contact your state rep or your state senator. Uh, it will be coming up for a vote, we hope, fairly soon. And at this time, we're going to take a little break. What can give you a competitive edge in today's red-hot housing market? Rocket can. That's because Rocket Mortgage can give you a verified approval. It could help your offer stand out. Rocket technology provides a rock-solid verification of your income, assets, and credit, giving sellers greater confidence in you. Go to rocketmortgage.com or call us today at 8338-ROCKET. A verified approval is based on an underwriter's analysis of your individual financial information, appraisal, and title report. Call for cost information and conditions equal housing lender license in all 50 states and MLSConsumerAccess.org number 3030. I love being able to share with our family who's listening how much we all love State Farm insurance. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm has saved us money with our car and home insurance. I mean, you're my wife. You know how much I love a great deal. So, of course, I'm going <laughs> to love the great rates and great service at State Farm. It's good for my wallet and for my family. State Farm meets my needs, plus I get to control how and what I want for my budget and and I do it all from their award-winning mobile app. Surprisingly great rates. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Tony LaGreca here. I want to tell you about a special event coming this October. Finding Hope and Grief is a support conference scheduled to take place on October 22nd and 23rd at the Doubletree Hilton in Westboro, Mass. The conference is for anyone who lives or works in Massachusetts and is bereaved by the death of a loved one from substance use. If you are interested in attending the conference and sharing a weekend of hope, healing fellowship, and remembrance, sadod.org. The conference is sponsored by the Department of Public Health and the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services, also supported by the AdCare Educational Institute. Again, that's sadod.org to register and sign up early. Well, welcome back. We're here with Angelo Valenti, who is the executive director of Prevention for a Drug-Free New Jersey. And Angelo has lots to talk about, as we, can, as we found out already. He, can, he puts more words into a half hour of anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> you can tell he's Italian. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, Angelo, uh, tell me about your White House office uh, visits. Is that... The, the national drug control policy. Um, what was that about? Yes. Yeah, so we had a chance uh, about three years ago, we were invited to the white house when they were um, uh, announcing their um, physical fitness council. 
And what they wanted to show was that it was important, uh, and this is a message to young people, that they uh, uh, tried to leave the computer screen, leave their phone screen, to uh, spend some time outdoors, uh, to be able to uh, be involved in organized sports. Uh, and uh, these are all ways for, for young people uh, to be able to look at alternatives to using drugs. And it's, it's part of the theme that we have uh, encouraged and really advocated for and, uh, and engaged young people in, in New Jersey for many years. We have a lot of programs in schools and one of the programs is called Fun Things to Do Instead of Drugs. And that's geared towards fourth grade students. And what they do is they create uh, a message on an eight by an eight and a half by 11 page about fun things to do instead of drugs. And they design different types of images. And then what we do is we select some of those and we profile them uh, throughout the state on, on our, our social media pages, on our website. And also we develop uh, overall, two overall winners of the thousands of, of, of uh, messages we get. And we put them on folders that we then distribute to every school in the state of New Jersey. And those folders are used as take-home folders for students to take home materials each evening. And they are a permanent and reminder of fun, that there's a lot of fun things to do instead of drugs. So it was, a, it was an extension of what we were doing in the state, encouraging people to get involved in outdoor activities and sports and physical fitness and being healthy, living healthy lifestyles. And that's what we have in our third grade program. It's called you know, Healthy Choices because we think it's important that these conversations begin at a very early age. Uh, there's no reason why in a third, fourth, fifth grade that parents shouldn't be speaking to children about healthy choices, about some of the dangers that come along with making the wrong choices along the, along the line. And a lot of this information should be age appropriate. So that was, that's how we really got actively involved in that, in that uh, event. Do No Harm Symposium series. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, so another part, and I keep on talking about this puzzle, but another part of the puzzle was educating the medical community. And we knew that for many years, the only information, the most of the information they were getting was coming from the pharmaceutical companies. And we thought it was time for them to get a different message. And what we did is we started a, at that point, a web, uh, an in-person um, series of, of events that took place at medical facilities, at hospitals, uh, at colleges and community centers. And we invited the medical community in. We invited them to come to listen to what we had to say. We assembled experts in the field uh, and they included other doctors that were very uh, proactive in this, in this particular area. Uh, they included the state of New Jersey's uh, regulatory commission to talk about what kind of regulatory um, guidelines a, a medical practitioner had to follow. And we also brought along an attorney because they wanted to talk about how if they followed these rules and regulations and if they shared this information, that they would also be able to help protect themselves from potential lawsuits down the, down the line. And these series were extreme. At the time, they were extremely innovative because really there wasn't a lot of conversations. Everybody was working sort of in silos and we wanted to break through some of those silos and we brought together sort of the legal community, the governmental community, the medical community and prevention all together sitting in a room and discussing this issue, figuring out 
how to be able to uh, make things better in the state. And we didn't, it wasn't, we weren't there to, to uh, lay blame on the medical community. And we were there to be able to share new information that we think would be helpful for them to make the, make important decisions with prescribing for their patients. And they were, uh, they, they were really, uh, you know, extremely uh, important because what, what uh, in, in a lot of cases, the information that came out of those meetings helped develop uh, legislation in the state. Uh, we have a, in New Jersey, we have a three-day uh, maximum prescribing for first prescriptions. And all that came out of these meetings. We also learned at the meetings that we didn't, we didn't want to make the work of the medical professional any more cumbersome. So we put into effect, you know, short um, cuts in using the prescription monitoring program that's in place in the state, which I know you have as well in Massachusetts, where a doctor has to check to see it before they prescribe, if that patient has other prescriptions, other opiate prescriptions from other doctors. And that was really done to avoid doctor shopping and individuals who were using those drugs for themselves and to also to sell it illicitly to other people. So. We, we came up with ways with the cooperation of the medical community on how to be able to make this more effective and easier to use. So not only was it important because it was extremely crucial life-saving life information that was being shared, but also there was a lot of practical um, benefits to having these groups come together to make things flow and work even better in the state. And what we did is those now uh, because of COVID a few years ago, we developed a webinar <coughs> series uh, that provided the continuing education credits that we did with the in-person events. And we now have a, uh, a webinar that people can go to at their leisure, the medical community can go to at their leisure, and they can get the credits they need. Because in many states, uh, I know Massachusetts, New Jersey, in many states, you, New Hampshire, you have to have so many credits uh, of continuing education every time you renew your medical license. And many states are now implementing a, a requirement that at least a certain number, it could be one hour, two hours, even more in some states, three hours, be on safe, safe prescribing of opiates. So we have provided now that, that one hour continuing education on safe prescribing of opiates. And the reason totally that's so important is that you know, we consider ourselves sort of the honest broker in this whole discussion because we our only interest is, is protecting the patients and making sure that they're, they're as safe as possible. And I think that the doctors responded, even though initially there was a little pushback, and not only doctors, the, med the dentists and nurse practitioners that take this, this, these, these uh, continuing education credits and participate in our programs. However, they saw early on that it wasn't, we weren't there to lay blame, we were there to come up with solutions. Yeah, on your website, I saw some kind of a thing that showed like in, uh, the numbers of people who die from um, yes. opioid. And it's like, it's incredible. It's like, uh, you can just see how many people are dying every day. It's just the exactly. num number keeps coming up, you know? Without a doubt. It's, and, it's, uh, and you know, one of the things we've learned also is that we have to break down stigma with this particular issue. And uh, again, early on, 2008 and 9 and 10, you know, 12, 10, 12 years ago, I mean, when we would have events, uh, especially at schools, 
the stigma the stigma that was attached to it was that the only people that were attending were people who had children that may have had an issue uh, with with substance use. However, what we found is that that has changed, especially in the last few, four to five, six years, because unfortunately, there's very few people that don't have a neighbor, a friend, a family member who hasn't gone through this. And they're learning that, you know, a lot of this happened because of being prescribed medicines from, from the medical community. And, you know, as a result of that, you know, people are becoming much more willing to engage, willing to participate. Uh, we now do webinars on a monthly basis on the opiate epidemic. We partner with the attorney general in the state and, and we'll, we'll have 2,500 to 3,000 participants on those webinars. And they represent uh, people across the board. They are professionals, they are, they are parents, they are people in the medical community, people in academia, people in government. So it's really a great way to be able to bring together everyone as a community. We also worked um, for the past six years or so with Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield in New Jersey, our, uh, the largest insurer in the state. And what we did with them is we developed uh, county, we have 21 counties in the state. We developed county-wide webinars where we brought together people within those counties to find out what resources were available right in their backyards to be able to help people. And they were another way to break down that stigma and bring people together and have people share their own stories. And uh, th those, those events were really uh, crucial in building that foundation in the state of New Jersey to really be able to, uh, to address the, the epidemic. Yeah, I found the stigma that the parents have to go through after an overdose is just way, way unbelievable because so much misunderstanding of what actually happened and how did it get to that point, you know. Um, when you have in your state, what do you do if the person's incarcerated and they're in prison and 80% of, in our state, we found that approximately 80% of all the prisoners were incarcerated because they committed a, a some type of broke the law because they were addicted and they were just trying to support their habit. And what is, what does New Jersey do in that area? So New Jersey has been extremely proactive in addressing that, uh, especially for the release programs. So when, when prisoners are be, being released from, from prison, uh, unfortunately the overdose rate uh, at that point is skyrockets. Uh, for individuals that are being released because they're being released. Uh, they don't have a, many of them don't have a support system in place. So there's, there's really a wraparound program in the state of New Jersey to, to assist those individuals. And also uh, there's uh, been uh, progress made on providing those individuals with medically assisted treatment uh, about a month prior to release. And then it continues uh, into their release, uh, into their release, into into the community. So that's really another program that I think is important, not only for that population, but for anyone who's dealing with with dependency and addiction. Is looking at medically assisted treatment as an option. Uh, we know that that for many years uh, that was not on the table, and now we're learning that medically assisted treatment, uh, along with uh, you know, a support system is really a great combination for keeping someone clean and giving them a great start, especially at, at the end of their prison term. Yeah, does the state provide funds for the sheriffs and, and the wardens of those prisons so they have actual and is money monitored so that we know that it's going straight to the for the for the addicted prisoner? 
yes, there, there's a very, very uh, active program at all levels, both at the, uh, the county level and the state level to be able to assist uh, with, with these individuals, absolutely. Okay, so on another note, um, it says here you're the member of the Holy Sees delegation to the United Nations. What, yes. what is that? And how does so, one, how does one, you would, you did that from 2000 to 2019. So you just yes. recently left it, but uh, how does one even know about that? Sure. So the, the Holy See uh, is the Vatican and uh, the Vatican is a uh, sovereign state. And at the United Nations, it has privileges to participate in uh, discussions that take place in the United Nations, including discussions on international drug control, which is one of the issues that's covered by the Fifth Committee in, 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 the, United, in the United Nations. So um, what I, I was a, uh, 20 some odd years ago, I was a student uh, uh, studying for a master's degree in diplomacy and international relations. And um, one of the requirements was that we had to do a, uh, a internship in an international uh, setting. So I had the opportunity to uh, meet with the, um, the representative from the, from the Vatican, the Holy See, that was assigned to the United Nations. And I was given an opportunity to become an intern within that organization. And after my uh, six months of, of interning with them, um, and I was very active uh, as well simultaneously with my full-time job with the Partnership for Drug Free New Jersey, uh, the Holy See asked me to stay on as an advisor and to follow uh, the international drug control issues within, within the United Nations. So I did that uh, for almost 20 years. I haven't been there since COVID, but I hope to go back uh, you know, hopefully this fall, because the, the, the sessions are usually held during the General, General Assembly uh, season, which takes place from September through December. So what we did uh, just specifically, some of the things we, we uh, advocated for during the discussions, because each committee has an opportunity to put a resolution through that's then voted on by the whole General Assembly. So the committee that I participated in, the Committee on International Drug Control and Crimes, uh, we were successful in many cases on advocating for the important role that families play in, in both prevention and in recovery. And we, uh, we were able to include that kind of language encouraging, supporting the roles of families uh, in recovery and in, in uh, prevention. So do you, do you have an insight on how, how the drug problem is in other countries? I mean, yes. how, do, how does the United States fare with places oh. like, let's say, other Western countries like Germany and France yeah. or Spain? Yeah, excellent, excellent question. I, that was one of the main reasons why I was so interested in continuing my my uh, term there and my uh, involvement with the with the United Nations because it really gave me uh, a, a sort of a, a unique ability to get knowledge about what was happening around the country, around the excuse me around the world. And what we what we found is that with regard to the opiate epidemic and specific, specifically that we were unique. Uh, in, in the, with the opiate epidemic. Uh, and I think when you look at the fact that I believe that the, the latest figures I saw was that uh, the Americans consume about 85% of the opiates that are produced in the world. And we represent only about 4% of the population. So 
you could see why uh, the, the opiate epidemic was really unique to our country because the amount of, of potential individuals that could become dependent was so extreme here in, the, in this country as opposed to other places. In many parts of the world, even in, you know, uh, uh, in the Western developed countries, opiates are used very sparingly. Uh, they're certainly not used for wisdom tooth extractions, as we spoke about a little bit earlier. And they're not used for minor acute pain circumstances. Uh, they're used for mostly for post-operative care. And um, that's you know, one of the reasons why, in some ways, we, didn't, we, we haven't seen the same kind of, uh, of increases in numbers of people that were being impacted uh, by, by this epidemic in other parts of the world. So it, it was very interesting to see that. Uh, certainly other drugs, uh, you know, are, are just as popular and just as uh, much of a problem in, in, uh, worldwide, but certainly opiates were very unique to our country. So the, what you're saying though, is that like the overdoses per a thousand people in other countries is nowhere near like it is in the United States. Not with regard to opiates or heroin or specifically the opiate, uh, those related to the opiate epidemic. Absolutely not. And that, I, I equate that problem because we're, we're the only country that has Purdue Farmer and Richard Sackler. He's yes. one that brainwashed all the doctors and brainwashed all the hospitals and everything that pain should be a, you know, a, the exactly. fifth. And, and we also know, Tony, for your listeners, for a long time, uh, hospitals were being reimbursed. And one of the criteria was the surveys that were taken by the patients that were, were exiting those hospitals, leaving those hospitals. And one of the questions was about pain management. And so there was a lot of pressure on the on hospitals to be able to provide, you know, opiates to patients to, to relieve them from all their pain so that they would get, you know, reimbursed at a, at a greater a greater amount. So that has changed. And we've seen that change over the last five or six years. But there was, you know, a lot of uh, of of stars aligning uh, at the same time, promoting the use uh, free use or uh, a widespread use of opiates, and, and and as a result of that, what we've saw, what we saw was you know what we're dealing with currently, which is which is you know unfortunately when you see the numbers they're they're staggering. Last year, in the United States, we we lost over a hundred thousand fellow you know residents of, of our country to to this epidemic. Uh, to, to, to overdoses, uh, the clear majority of them, 70, 80% of those uh, were related to opiates and heroin. So just again, how many overdoses would there have been in the country like Germany with 65 million people? Yeah, I, I don't have the specific numbers, but we know that the, the, the significantly less uh, overdoses related to opiate related overdoses, uh, significantly less. Wow. Um, moving on to <clears throat> another thing here. You wrote a book with Jack Canfield. Yes, yes. Um, this it sounds like a very interesting book. So can you talk to us about that? Give us the, the preview yes. or the, you know. Of course. So the book was actually, we were uh, able to write a chapter in Jack Canfield's book. Uh, and it was a book about, uh, it was, our chapter talked about the origins of our organization and how to successfully build a nonprofit from really uh, from the start and how to be able to uh, 
cultivate supporters and, and really engage people in that process early on. So, and many of the other chapters talk about, you know, successful uh, ventures in, in, in different uh, disciplines, but ours was specifically about the nonprofit world and about the partnership and really how we, we started, you know, really with a concept. And now we, we continued on that path to become the largest continuous uh, campaign in the history of the state. And that was, you know, it started with a meeting of two or three people and then identifying and so important to identify other people to bring on along on the journey and who, people who are committed to this particular cause. I mean, that's so important also. And not only do you want to get the support of the corporations in, in, in the state that you're in or the county or the, the municipality, but you also want to get people that are committed and understand the importance of what they're doing, the mission that's there. So importance to mission as well as, as a commitment, that combination is crucial. It is, definitely. So um, before we run out of time, what have I not asked you that you would like to have people know about everything that you do? Well, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that's so important is that everyone has the ability to help take steps to protect their families. I mean, certainly you wanna make sure that you get rid of the medicine that you have in your medicine cabinet and dispose of that medicine, either at your home or at a, at a facility that can easily be identified. Secondly, talk to your children. Uh, you know, at a, at a young age, uh, it's okay to start your conversations in the second, third, or fourth grade. We encourage that in the state of New Jersey and continue those conversations on uh, right up through college and, and, and beyond. Uh, make sure that the, your kids know that your home is a safe place for them to come to if there's a problem, if there's concerns. I mean, that's also very, very important. I think the other thing we, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's okay to challenge your doctor when it comes to when they're prescribing an opiate. It's okay to ask questions. I mean, for the longest time, you know, especially uh, a generation or two back, I mean, there was, you would never, uh, many people would never ask a doctor, uh, you know, those kind of questions. Well, what we're learning now, it's fine. It's fine to have those conversations. It's, it's important. And, and so that, those are the kind of things, and those are the kind of simple steps that you could take, everyone could take, uh, in order to help protect themselves and their families. Okay, and one totally unrelated decision thing here, <laughs> since I know you live in Hoboken. Yes. It's, uh, okay, we wanna know how did you get Frank Sinatra's dining room set in your house. I know yes. how you got it in physically, but how did you happen to buy the Frank Sinatra's dining room set? This is, this is for my, I do the influential Italian music hour. And for those who are listeners of that show would probably like to know that here's this guy who is Italian and he happens to have Frank Sinatra's dining room set. So what's all that about? Well, uh, my family uh, has been in Hoboken for generations. So we're here uh, over a hundred years. And uh, my grandmother and uh, Dolly Sinatra were uh, acquaintances and friends. So um, when uh, the Sinatra family dining room set was, um, there was a family that, that had purchased it from the Sinatra family when they left town. Uh, this, this, this family was moving on. They were moving to a much smaller home and they contacted us knowing that we had had a long history uh, in Hoboken and, and, and gave us the dining room set. They told us that they wanted to give it to us, but there was a condition. The condition that was that we would pass it on 
when the time came that we 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 wanted to downsize uh, from town and leave it in the hands of other Hoboken residents that also you know had the same kind of interest. So so that's really how we wound up getting the dining room set from uh, the Sinatra family dining room set. Okay, and, and Dolly Sinatra is who? How is Dolly she related? Is Frank Sinatra's mother? Oh, okay, that's very cool. Yes. yes. Uh, so well. We want to thank you very much for all your information and your time. Yes. Uh, I know you're a busy guy and oh. I missed there's a few things in your bio that I didn't even get to today, but there's only so much time in the show, but I think we covered all the highlights and we really appreciate everything. And, and again, for our listeners, 40 H four, eight, one, four is the bill that we really need you to pass. I want Massachusetts to be the 19th state yes. that has this bill on the books. Um, if we want to help reduce the opioid uh, death numbers, I think Massachusetts has been averaging 2,000 a year. Uh, it's way too many. And we we got to start somewhere. And this is one of the places we can start. And they just have to call their senator and their rep, right? Absolutely, Tony. If they just call them and tell them that they're interested in them supporting H4814, that's a life-saving bill that'll help families throughout the state of Massachusetts. I think that that would be all they need to do uh, to really make uh, a major, uh, have a major influence on the passage of this bill. And Tony, I just want to mention to you, first and foremost, thank you for this opportunity. But also, uh, I certainly, we look forward to maybe doing an in-person bill signing in Massachusetts once the bill is passed. Yes, that's I would nothing I would like better to be doing. I'm telling you, I really would love that, you know. So, again, this is Tony LaGrecker, and this is the Courage to Hope. And this was Angelo Valenti from the New Jersey Partnership for Drug Free New Jersey. Thank you very much, Angelo. My pleasure, Tony. Thank you. Till next time. Yes, absolutely.